Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everybody. Uh, I've got an odd one today, you know, for a change. After this intro, you'll hear a uh, 16-minute interview with Dahlia Lithwick about Justice Ginsburg and the court and the harrowing path forward on the election and uh, very likely post-election court battle. And she is just brilliant, you know, as always. And that will bum you out. We're all bummed out and anxious and and scared uh, between the pandemic and the very real prospect that Trump is going to do everything he can to steal this election. The only way he won't steal this election is if if he can't. So I have decided that you might want some laughs. And the last 35 minutes of today's podcast is a piece I've written and performed entitled The Day the President Laughed. It's an allegory. Jared and Ivanka and uh, Eric and Don Jr., realize that they have never seen their father laugh. So they have a contest. And the person who can make the president laugh will win title to uh, one of the family high-rises in Midtown Manhattan. And I am very happy with the day the president laughed, and I, I know you'll enjoy it. Here's a short sample. Hello, Mr. President Trump, sir. Penn said brightly with a respectful tip of his top hat. Didn't I fire you? Yes, you did, Mr. President. Penn nodded. Then Teller nodded as well. Ivanka watches her father, who for the first time that day rose from his chair. Slowly, he walked around the desk and approached the team, eyes squinting menacingly just inches from Teller's face. You. What's your name? Pipsqueak? Is Pipsqueak your name? Pipsqueak? He's Teller, sir. My partner, Teller. We're Penn and Teller. So that's coming up, but first, Dahlia Lithwick. I know this has been a horribly uh, busy week for you, and by horribly, I mean, obviously, uh, Justice Ginsburg's death has uh, put a lot of, well, first of all, she was a brilliant giant, but also there's a lot of ramifications from it. So what have you been mainly talking about this week? I know you've been busy. I was just making my coffee and thinking about the fact that when Justice Scalia died in February of 2016, I felt like we had at least kind of two, three days in the news cycle to do the in memoriam, you know, talk about his legacy, his cases, what he meant, you know, the the thumbprint that he left on the court. With Justice Ginsburg, it's just felt as though we had maybe 10 minutes of that before we were into the yep. McConnell, you know, slap down political fest. And so I think one of the things that I, I've done a, a lot of 
talking in this past week, um, but but one of the things I've really noticed is how compressed the amount of time was that we could really devote to her legacy, her career, you know, her her legal advocacy for the ACLU Women's Law Project. I just think in some ways we almost erase this giant because Mitch McConnell within, you know, a minute was talking about the seat. So so that's that's been just a little frustrating because I, I would have liked to spend a little bit more time talking about how she kind of changed the world in a lot of ways. But, you know, yeah, we're, we're in it. We're in the gloves are off. And now pretty much it's just what can Dems do? What can the Senate do? What can be done? Court reform, court reform, court reform, court packing. Well, let's talk about her changing the world. Uh, I mean, it was the ACLU she was at. Mm-hmm. where she changed uh, law in, in regard to you guys, right? Women. Yeah, you're half yeah. plus, uh, plus a little bit of the human race, right? I, I mean, you don't want to overstate it, but it's simply true. She was the one who more or less bent the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment in ways that gave women the same rights as men. You know, the thing that was was cool was that she did it by bringing a whole bunch of cases on behalf of men. So she would find these male plaintiffs who were disadvantaged by some law that, you know, whether it was a tax law or social security or whatever, benefits law that just started from the presumption that men were the breadwinners and women were the yeah, caregivers. Yeah, it was a widower, that she, a famous case that she took. He didn't get her benefits because his wife worked and he was entitled to her benefits. But by choosing that case, she made the strong point that this is human rights, not just women's rights. Yeah. And she, you know, there was there was just a string of them. There was, you know, a father who wanted to stay home with his son when the wife died, who couldn't get benefits, a a man who wanted to stay home uh, with his ailing mother who couldn't get benefits. And in each case, she just made this really eloquent claim that those kind of stereotypes written into the law, not just that they hold women back, but they actually hold men back, too, because these men, you know, couldn't live the lives they wanted to live, just couldn't care for their loved ones or couldn't have have a, a spouse that was the primary breadwinner. And it, it seems kind of trivial now, but it was so radical. And I think in a sense, because she was always talking to panels of male judges, it helped puncture in their head the idea that these laws were just chivalrous, like that women wanted to be taken care of and help them understand like, oh, that that doesn't seem fair. And so that, you know, she she argued five, six cases at the Supreme Court. She won five of them. Uh, when she argued at the court, Justice Blackman, who famously kept notes on, you know, how oral advocates were performing, gave her in his margins, he wrote C plus and then very precise female. You know, but she won <laughs> five of the six. She was, she was amazing. And then, you know, she goes on, she's (laughs) elevated to the D.C. Circuit. She's elevated to the Supreme Court by Bill Clinton. And then from the bench, you know, she goes ahead and and in the sort of landmark case, Al, she gets this case about uh, VMI, Virginia Military Institute, that's only taking male cadets. And she writes the opinion that says, you know, it's kind of the capstone of her career, saying there's just nothing about your hazing and your training and your teaching that should preclude women. And she allows women cadets to enter. So I think, you know, really, the world is different for all of us because of her. Uh, Of course, boom. Uh, everybody had to go right to McConnell, right back to Merrick Garland, back to the hypocrisy. It's amazing, isn't it? 
but all too predictable what has happened. I think the one thing that was surprising to me about this, if anything, was that he started the grave dancing before there was a grave. Like he didn't even wait until news of her death. Mitch McConnell was talking all summer about taking this seat and and was doing the spade work for months before to make the argument that they were going to have a hearing, even if it was in a lame duck session, they were going to have a hearing and seat someone. And somehow, you know, I kind of thought he had hit the the zenith of his grossness before, but somehow stealing a seat from a person even before they pass. He was asked uh, earlier this year that if um, there was a vacancy that came up this year, this election year, whether he would... Uh, replace that person. And he said yes with a what was described by the Washington Post as a sly smile. And then there was a laugh from uh, the audience. And, you know, that's a really, really obscene. And and because, of course, the Merrick, I was there for Merrick Garland. I think there's no point, Al, in the like, oh, here's video of people saying four years ago that no president should seat anybody in an election. You know, let's gotcha, Lindsey Graham. Let's gotcha, whoever else uh, in the Senate said verbatim the same thing. There's no point because they're unshameable. I I think they just don't feel any sense that they need to be held to what was the McConnell rule four years ago and the McConnell rule now. And so I think sort of video gotcha of, hey, wait, here's Lindsey Graham saying, hold me to this. I would never do it in an election year. It's just, it's not worth our time, I don't think. It it is sort of sad, too. I I saw a thing with uh, Schumer and Durbin um, holding up, like, contradictory statements. (laughs) That McConnell had made as if that is going to do anything. So what do we do? I mean, there's nothing to do. There's no hard power in the Senate for Democrats to stop this. There's nothing to be done. Yeah, I, I keep saying when people are like, well, let's start another impeachment. You know, like we'll clog up the Senate. Like there's no play here. So they're going to do this. The question is a political calculus, right? Are they going to do it before the election? Or are they going to do it in the lame duck? Is that what we're looking at here? It's that. It's are they going to uh, mash her through before the election? Are they going to mash her through in a lame duck? And I would add, uh, Mike Pence is now saying things like maybe we don't need to have a hearing. Maybe we just pop her on the court without a hearing because we just need somebody to decide the 2020 election. We need our person there. So I, I don't even know if they feel they need to have a hearing. Yeah, because so the hearing would be awkward. Well, <laughs> I mean, I it mean would, it would give uh, Democrats a chance to say stuff that would be embarrassing, maybe. So, yes. I mean, I think that the question is, is it worse for Republicans in tight races, you know, for the Lindsey Grahams and the Cory Gardners? Is it worse for them to mash this through before the election or mash it through in a lame duck, presumably if some of them have lost. We can use this, presumably, uh, to win the election and to take the Senate. And nothing could probably be more important right now. Uh, But speaking of the election, I'm sure that you've been paying a lot of attention to how this can be stolen. We have a president who basically has said that he will not accept the results. He has said that uh, if he loses, that means it was rigged. 
And he has said there will not be a peaceful transition of power, basically, if he doesn't win. So what are the legal questions going forward? I know this is there was a long article in the Atlantic Monthly about this. What are the most salient aspects of all that that you see? Bart Gelman did that piece uh, in the Atlantic you know, a lot of what he said we already knew, which is that there are a whole bunch of kind of inflection points in that what he called the interregnum period, by, right between the November uh, election and the inauguration. There are a whole bunch of points at which, through a whole bunch of different sort of legal, constitutional, extra legal, pure power machinations, the election can be stolen for the Republicans. And he kind of goes through and lays out you know, what can happen if it's a close election and the state just decides we're just going to, you know, put our own slate of electors forward or what's going to happen if, you know, a whole bunch of quote unquote poll watchers just go to polling places. He just kind of got under the hood and said, here are all the wobbly places and the rickety places where if one were hell bent on stealing an election, one could do it, you know, and, and in some places got folks on the Trump campaign to admit like, yeah, we're doing this and we're doing that and this is going to happen. And so it it was shocking in a way, but it was also not shocking only in the sense that I think everybody knew, even in 2016, Donald Trump was saying during the campaign that the election was going to be stolen and he wasn't going to concede. And even in 2016, he was making false allegations about busloads of Mexicans who were voting twice. So it, it was funny that the Gelman piece blew our heads off because in a lot of ways, he was just showing us all the stuff we already knew, which is that Donald Trump will not ever accept defeat and he will use whatever legal, extra legal, constitutional media powers he has uh, at his disposal to make that happen. I guess the only difference is now that he's president, he's got Bill Barr under the hood with him with the big wrench. I mean, I just think there are lots of things that they quote unquote can't do that they might do anyway. (laughs) You know, that was in some ways the lesson of, you know, the Brooks Brothers riot in 2000, right, in Florida. I mean, I think that what he was trying to do was to say, don't have such magical thinking about what your state law says or what the Constitution says or what the courts say, because if one side is hell-bent on saying, oh, the results are really murky, you know, we can't count any votes that came in after November 3rd, or we're going to throw out, you know, things with blurry postmarks or whatever rule they make up, that we're feeling like, well, they have to be constrained by some rule. And I think the predicate that Gelman is sort of laying out is at every turn, they could just say, don't really care what the law is, just going to say we have no confidence in the vote and we're going to pick electors our way. And so I think what he's trying to say is don't be so sanguine that just because things have been done a certain way, either by law or by custom or by norm, that they are not going to find a way to upend that. And And I just think that's a useful point. And I also think here's the essential thing, is that our response to that can't be to curl up and die. Like the response has to be, okay, 
Didn't know that. Like, didn't realize. You know, we got a bunch of of North Carolina folks on the Board of Elections just quit. You know, just like people in in now in Florida, they're now saying we're going to throw out every single ballot that was, you know, not uh, counted by November 3rd. Like, all of these things are going to happen. There's over 200 lawsuits in the various states, all of them doing some version of this, just saying we don't really care what the law is about mail-in ballots. We're changing it now. Now and make us stop. They openly say we need this justice so that <laughs> this can be adjudicated. Didn't you always believe that push comes to shove, that Chief Justice Roberts would not allow like an, just an egregious ruling uh, to hand the election to Trump? I have always believed that. Yep. Forgetting his decision, Citizens United, his Shelby decision, decision, his vote in Bush v. Gore, that assuming that the Trump case is completely bogus, (laughs) Mm -hmm. that I just had always gone like, okay, the Chief Justice believes at least a little bit in this democracy, and we can rely on him, and that's why we were pretty sanguine, I think about this until Justice Ginsburg left. But even if it was 4-4, at least it could be a tie. And that's why they want to get the sixth conservative, right? Well, and just remember, a 4-4 tie at the Supreme Court means that the lower court ruling is is the ruling. So that isn't necessarily, even if he sort of flipped and voted with the liberals, we are not in the position we were in a week ago, um, you know, when it would have been 5-4, because then it just turns on what's happening in the lower courts. And, you know, here, I, th- I guess it's worth saying the thing I say every time I come on your show, which is Donald Trump has seated 200, you know, judges, lifetime tenure on the federal courts. Many of them are not fit to, like, even walk into a courtroom, much less be a federal judge. Uh, but, you know, the, the courts are unrecognizable. And so now we're going to have these cases that are working their way up through courts. But I think all we can say is if people don't vote, like vote like their lives depended on it, then this is going to be close. And I think once it's close, that's for me was the takeaway of the Gelman article. Once it's close, that's when the crazy crap starts. So I think it's just vote and register voters. And if it's not a tidal wave, if it's not unequivocal, this is going to be close. And the other thing is, I think Donald Trump is pushing harder and harder and harder to stop all counting on the night of November 3rd. And I think people need to acculturate themselves to the fact that this election may not be called on November 3rd. And that if Fox News calls it on November 3rd, that doesn't mean the election is over and that it may take days or a week or two weeks. And to live with that uncertainty too. So I I think those are the two calls, like prevent uncertainty. And then if there is uncertainty, live with uncertainty. And that's very hard when, you know, your, your entire nervous system is about to collapse. Oh boy. Well, thanks Dahlia. I mean, uh, I know this has been a harrowing uh, week for you, but it's going to be another harrowing uh, 40 days. Oh, and after that, yep. And then, yeah, beyond that, probably for the uh, whole lame duck period. And uh, at the end of this, um, I hope that you you and I are allowed to talk again. Yes, sir. (laughs) I'm right here. (laughs) Okay. 
Want to thank Dahlia. Brilliant, brilliant as always. Uh, When we return, the world premiere of the day the president laughed. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. The day the president laughed. Ivanka and Jared were worried about the president. They had been noticing that as his poll numbers continued to lag behind Joe Biden's, Trump had been railing nonstop about his perceived enemies, screaming at the TV and tweeting insane bile day and night. Alarmed that her father just might physically attack a White House staffer, she and Jared called a meeting with her brothers to express their concern that the president was finally going around the bend. But Don Jr. and Eric were not so sure. Dad, they said, didn't seem to be acting any different than usual. That sparked an argument that quickly turned heated, especially after Jared let out that he believed his father-in-law had always been off-the-rails crazy. The Trump brothers went batshit, airing all their grievances against Jared and Ivanka and spouting many of the anti-Semitic tropes that the boys resorted to when they were particularly drunk, ticked off, or both. Jared had heard it all many times and kept it together until Donald Jr. suggested that Ivanka 
have been exploiting their father's unhealthy sexual attraction to her all along. Infuriated, Jared threatened to make the altercation physical. But when Eric spit in his face, Jared immediately backed down. That only emboldened the Trump brothers to mock Jared about tucking his Jew tail between his legs. Sensing that things had gotten out of control, Ivanka screamed, We're a family, damn it! It's about time we acted like one! And then broke down and sobbed, her body shaking violently. The brothers cracked up, Don Jr. falling on the floor laughing and rolling around gasping for breath. Between howls of laughter, Eric cruelly mimicked her, repeating, We're a family, damn it! over and over. But suddenly, Ivanka stopped crying. The brother's hysterical laughter had sparked an idea. She had recently read a profile in People magazine of a psychiatrist, Dr. Sybil Aronson, whose hot new bestseller, Laughing Your Way Back to Sanity, explained how watching comedy had helped a number of her most severely depressed patients cope with their severe depression. It had occurred to Ivanka that she had never seen her father laugh, not once in her life. That suddenly stopped the floor rolling around in the intensely cruel mockery. The brothers realized that neither of them had ever seen their father laugh either. Nor had Jared. Maybe, just maybe, if they could get him to laugh, even just once, maybe their lives would become, well, tolerable. But how? How do you get Donald Trump to laugh? Jared, who has always considered himself the smartest and most capable member of the family, had an idea. How about a contest? The lines snaking across the South Lawn of the White House included clowns, mimes, stand-ups, ventriloquists, comic magicians, jugglers, hypnotists, and mentalists, as well as a man who billed himself as the world's cleverest punster. They had come from all around the world, each hoping that he or she would be the one to make the President of the United States laugh for the very first time in his life. Many had spent their life savings to be here, coming from places as far away as Laos and Namibia. It was all worth it, they each thought, for the chance to gain fame and fortune. Satellite trucks from every cable news network and hundreds of local TV affiliates from around the country were there to cover the spectacle, as well as news crews from all around the world. The fortune would come in the form of full title to a family high-rise in Midtown Manhattan. In the Oval Office, Ivanka was trying to wrestle the TV remote from her father's hands. When she had first approached him with the idea for the contest, the president had been intrigued. He had seen people laugh many, many times, in fact. Most recently, when he wandered into Melania's bedroom and found her cackling at a YouTube video of a terrified cat watching the shower scene from Psycho. It wasn't so much that he was interested in what it would be like to laugh himself. After all, he had become president without ever laughing once in his entire life. But you know what? He told the kids. I'm curious about what people think I would find funny. That was particularly encouraging. 
It had been months since they heard him express curiosity about anything other than his poll numbers. Maybe this was an even better idea than they had thought. But now, on the day of the contest, the president was in a particularly foul mood. The first few contestants who'd tried to make him laugh had been unsuccessful. Not because they weren't funny. In fact, not only had Jared, Ivanka, and the Trump brothers laughed uproariously several times, so had Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, and even the Secret Service detail, who had been ordered not to laugh. The problem was that Trump had insisted on watching cable news while the various performers did their acts. The coverage of the event had made him furious as commentator after commentator ventured to explain why a man might reach the age of 74 without so much as a chuckle. Now Ivanka was putting her foot down. Dad, we are doing this because we love you. That's right, said Jared. We love you so, so much. Yes, agreed Eric. And I love you more than all of them put together, Donald Jr. added, gingerly placing a hand on his father's shoulder. Fine, the president screamed, throwing the remote at Meadows' head. I'll pay attention, but only if we make Mike sit through this bullshit, too. As the vice president's motorcade was making its way from the U.S. Naval Observatory, the president had turned his attention back to the three television screens in the Oval. While tweeting out particularly nasty attacks, he reserved his harshest for female mental health professionals, calling Dr. Civil Aronson a crazy old skank. Just before the VP arrived at 1600, Trump caught a Fox News Channel camera panning the long line of hopefuls, eagerly awaiting their shot. He told Meadows that a few looked foreign, which indeed many were. Soon those from shithole countries were summarily shackled and removed, then driven directly to Dulles and escorted onto planes and flown back to their home countries, even though each and every one had been issued a 30-day visa. Even with the line culled of undesirables, the contest was running hours behind by the time the vice president arrived. The president was very unhappy. Not conducive to comedy, Ivanka thought. Still, she had high hopes for the next act. Comedy juggler Michael Goudeau, who she and Jared had seen on their honeymoon at the Sands in Las Vegas. Goudeau had even used her as a volunteer for his trademark routine, juggling three razor-sharp knives while riding a six-foot-tall unicycle. Goudeau carried the unicycle into the Oval Office, escorted by a Marine lieutenant who was carrying the three knives, each with an 18-inch razor-sharp blade. After very carefully setting the knives on an antique table beside Ivanka, the lieutenant smartly saluted the president and then left the room. Goudeau moved directly to the center of the Oval Office, which had been cleared for the day's proceedings. He bowed, then spoke directly to Trump. Mr. President, I am Michael Goudot, a comedy juggler from Paris, France. But uh, several years ago, we met when I performed at uh, one of your casinos in Atlantic City. I don't remember you, the president replied from his seat behind the resolute desk. Of course, replied Goudot, but I remember you uh, because I thought to myself, uh, even then, 
that the one day we would meet again here in the over office. Trump snapped back. I'm on to you, Frenchie. Aha, Mr. President. Touché. Today, for your entertainment, sir, I will juggle three razor-sharp knives while riding a six-foot unicycle. Okay, Surrender Monkey. Let's see it. Goudeau nodded graciously, then awkwardly attempted to mount the unicycle, failing once, then twice. On the third attempt, success. He was up, but wildly unsteady, zigzagging back and forth there on the oval-shaped carpet. Trump leaned over to Meadows, whispering loud enough for everyone to hear. This guy's a fucking moron. Godot tried to steady himself, his feet frantically pedaling back and forth, jerking the thing precariously until he finally achieved some semblance of stability. Then looking down, uh, Ivanka, I want you to pick up the knives uh, by the handle, always by the handles. Doing her best to look nervous, Ivanka picked up the long knives carefully, one by one. Good, said Godot, finally quite steady. Now hand them up to me, carefully, one at a time, by the handle, always by the handle. Tentatively, Ivanka approached, raising the first knife, its razor-sharp edge catching a flash of the early afternoon sun, up toward Godot's outstretched, shaky hand. Trump turned to Mike Murtaugh, the lead Secret Service agent. Hey, Mike, I don't like this. We checked him out, Mr. President. The president looked nervous. Just the handoff of the razor-sharp knives looked like it would be very tricky. You sure? It's fine, sir. Godot reached down and grabbing the first knife by its wooden handle as he momentarily lost his equilibrium, his arms suddenly flailing frantically to regain control, the knife slashing wildly through the air just inches from Ivanka's flawless features. Whoa! Trump shouted, turning to the Secret Service. Are you guys fucking nuts? But now everyone else, including Ivanka, was laughing uproariously as Goudeau and Ivanka repeated the gag with the second knife. By the third, it was clear that the Frenchman was in complete control and set to juggle the knives. Everyone in the room, except Trump and Pence, burst into applause. Now if I uh, make a mistake, he announced to the room, and the knives fly at you, catch them by the handle. As the others broke up, the president scowled. Also the ceiling. It is uh, much lower than the spaces that I am accustomed to working. So if the uh, knives bounce off and come right at you, catch it by the handle. The laughter quickly turned to wild, sustained applause as the jugglers started tossing the blades into the air, each reaching its apogee mere millimeters from the Oval Office ceiling. After 20 flawless seconds of world-class juggling, Godot dismounted the unicycle with a flourish and bowed, holding aloft the three razor-sharp knives. All but Pence and the president stood, grinning and applauding. At that moment, a thought occurred to Jared Kushner. This was the first time that he had seen White House staff momentarily freed from the tyranny of the president's foul moods. But that, he surmised would soon end. That was pathetic. Trump sneered. I used to juggle, a lot of juggling. Many said I was the best. 
And I did that trick with many more knives, so many knives, the most knives you've ever seen, you wouldn't believe it, with sharp blades, long, sharp, very long blades, the sharpest. As the afternoon wore on, Jared and the Trump kids sank deeper and deeper into a very deep, very dark despondency. During a 15-minute break, the president had called so he could tweet out vicious critiques of various acts. They huddled in Ivanka's West Wing office to compare notes. This was a stupid idea, Ivanka, one or both of the brothers told her. Jared was too busy monitoring his father-in-law's tweets to defend her. Oh, my God. What? He went after Piff the Magic Dragon. Jesus! One or both of the brothers exclaimed. Ivanka winced, recalling how mortified everyone but Pence had been by her father's encounter with Piff the Magic Dragon, a small British magician in a dragon costume, and his magic-performing chihuahua, Mr. Piffles, also wearing a dragon costume. Piff had opened with a joke. Mr. President, I am Piff the Magic Dragon. You might have heard of my older brother, Steve. For some reason, that enraged the president. Who gives a shit about this moron's brother? Chief of Staff Meadows then committed an inexplicable unforced error by explaining the joke. You see, Mr. President, we were all expecting Puff. You know, Puff the Magic Dragon. But instead, his brother's name is Steve, which is an extremely ordinary, everyday name. Judging by the torrent of tweets now gushing from the Oval, Jared's guess was that Meadows was not long for his job. Even so, it had been all downhill from there. Soldiering on after the Steve misfire, Piff the Magic Dragon announced the trick that he and Mr. Piffles would perform together. Mr. Piffles, my dog in a dragon suit, will solve a Rubik's Cube. The magician pulled a scrambled Rubik's Cube from a pocket in his dragon suit and held it up for everyone to see. Now, before I place this scrambled Rubik's Cube in Mr. Piffle's magic box, why don't we make sure, to everyone's satisfaction, that the Rubik's Cube has been randomly scrambled properly? Now, Mr. President, if you would do the honors, sir. Piff slid the Rubik's Cube across the resolute desk to the President. All eyes were on Trump as he stared at the cube. Pick it up. Pick it up, Ivanka, and everyone else in the Oval Office was thinking. And finally, that's exactly what he did. Twist it! Twist it! Screamed Ivanka's brain. And then, to everyone's relief, he did, giving half the cube one good rotation. Trump examined the cube once more. Another twist. This one along a different axis. Then another. And another. And another. And another. Finally satisfied, he pushed the properly randomized Rubik's Cube back to Piff the Magic Dragon. Well done, sir, said Piff, who then placed Mr. Piffles and the Rubik's Cube in what he called his magic box. A few seconds after closing the lid, the box began to shake. After another 30 seconds or so, the shaking stopped. Piff opened the box, pulling out the solved Rubik's Cube. Next, he pulled out Mr. Piffles, and then triumphantly displayed the box. 
insisting that they all pass it around so each and every one could inspect the magic box to see for themselves that it was indeed empty. Each had nodded, knowing by now to remain silent. All eyes turned to Trump, who bestowed the small courtesy of making eye contact with Piff. I'm sure, the president assured Piff, and then Mr. Piffles, that I could solve the cube much faster. Ivanka teared up, recalling the dead silence that followed. It was just a moment, perhaps no more than a second, but that second had seemed to last forever. Thank God, Ivanka recalled, thinking that Piff the Magic Dragon finally ended the excruciating silence. It's a trick. He's a dog. It, it's a dog solving a Rubik's Cube. That, that, that's the joke. That, of course, had made things even worse as bad as any moment ever. Until, that is, her father pounded his fist. I'm smarter than any dog in the world! The one thing that Ivanka knew she would never get out of her head was the look on Piff's face. Standing in his dragon costume and holding little Mr. Piffles in his tiny dragon costume. Piff was white as a ghost. Even Mr. Piffles sensed that something... Something was terribly wrong. I will never forget that little dog, Ivanka would later confide to her husband, shaking like a leaf, wanting so desperately to get out of that room. But even that, Ivanka was thinking, had not turned out to be the low point of the day thus far. That had to be when Terry Fader, a Las Vegas ventriloquist, brought his trump dummy. It turned out that her dad was not at all insulted, just very confused, interrupting Fader very soon into the routine. Who is that? The president asked. I'm sorry, Mr. President. Is there a speaker in that doll? It, 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 it's not a doll, sir. It, it's a figure. And I'm a ventriloquist. I'm doing his voice and mine. I do the voice without moving my lips. That, that's the joke, the skill, the, the, the trick. Big deal. Watch this, he said, turning to Pence. Mike. Ivanka cringed, thinking about the next few minutes. How the vice president instinctually knew to sit on her father's lap and call him the greatest president ever and the smartest and, with just the slightest bit of prompting, the best looking. It was Agent Murtaugh who saved the day, pretending to enjoy the bit Murtaugh somehow communicated to the others that it would be best for everyone to take this as a brilliant meta-joke, to pretend that the president and vice president were deliberately having ironic fun, employing the conceit that Trump was such an awful human being that he would humiliate Pence by making him act like a ventriloquist dummy blowing smoke up his boss's ass. As the others gradually caught on, the feigned laughter began to build. No one was more grateful than Pence himself, whose soul had been on serious life support for so long now. By the end, all but the Trump brothers and the president himself were in on the joke or meta-joke, or perhaps meta-meta-joke. When Trump finished suddenly by throwing Pence off his lap, yelling, Oh no, Mikey made a poopy! The laughter and applause could be heard all the way out to the South Lawn, where many a heartbroken contestant assumed the competition 
had just ended. After the 90-minute Twitter break, the contest resumed in the Oval. Absent several aides who had been in attendance earlier, but now claimed to have more urgent work to attend to. Ivanka knew they were lying. Nothing urgent had been attended to in the White House for months. But her mind was now on another matter. Why were the next contestants, another comedy magic team, even here? Yes, Penn and Teller were far better known than Piff and Mr. Piffle, but that was exactly the point. Penn, the one who talks, had been a contestant on not one, but two seasons of Celebrity Apprentice. In fact, he had been runner-up that second time around. And because Penn had been so popular on the show, it really stung when Penn told anyone who would listen in 2016 that Trump would make a horrible president. Nor had it helped that Penn had chosen to describe Trump's hair as looking like cotton candy made of piss. As far as her father was concerned, the cotton candy piss comment meant war. A Twitter war in which the president repeatedly claimed that any success that the horrible, boring Penn and Teller had ever enjoyed was due only to Penn's appearances on his mega-hit reality show. So why did Trump even allow them? He wants to humiliate them, Jared had told her. That's why she had married Jared, she reminded herself. But then why would Penn and Teller want to compete when they clearly had no chance? The Marine lieutenant greeted Penn and Teller outside the door to the Oval Office. Mr. Penn, Mr. Teller, I saw your act at the Sahara on my honeymoon. You did the trick where Teller catches the bullet in his teeth. It was amazing, sir and sir. Actually, we're doing a variation of that same trick today, smiled Penn. Cool, said the young Marine. Say, why are you two dressed in top hat and tails, if I might ask? Out of respect for the office. Teller nodded in agreement. His huge top hat tilted jauntily to the left. As the lieutenant escorted Penn and Teller into the Oval Office, Ivanka noticed that her father's face was turning red. Hello, Mr. President Trump, sir, Penn said brightly with a respectful tip of his top hat. Didn't I fire you? Yes, you did, Mr. President, Penn nodded. Then Teller nodded as well. Ivanka watched as her father, who, for the first time that day, rose from his chair. Slowly, he walked around the desk and approached the team, eyes squinting menacingly, just inches from Teller's face. You. What's your name? Pipsqueak? Is Pipsqueak your name? Pipsqueak? He's Teller, sir. My partner, Teller. We're Penn and Teller. On the third mention of his name, Teller produced, seemingly from out of nowhere, actually his sleeve, a butterfly net. Penn and Teller. Penn and Teller. A lot of people say your act is terrible. Stinks. Worst ever. Then, turning to Penn. You know, you were totally unknown before Celebrity Apprentice. Um, it's Celebrity Apprentice, so I couldn't have been unknown and... Still be on the show. Yes, you could. That hung in the air. Then? You're fired. Uh, okay, but can we show you a trick first? Dad? Ivanka took her father aside and whispered, If you really want to humiliate them, it might be better to see the trick so you can describe it to the media when you tell them how terrible it was. Okay, fuck it. 
Show me your pathetic little trick, Pen and Pipsqueak. Yes, sir. Ben replied with a small bow. Mr. President, we will do a version of our most famous trick, the bullet catch. Teller will catch a 357 Magnum bullet in this butterfly net. Does that seem impossible? I could do it. Of course, I mean, for us. You are lousy, so yes. Teller waved the butterfly net for all to see, as Penn opened his jacket, revealing a large shoulder holster. I have here a Colt Python 357 Magnum. In a flash, Murtaugh was on him. It's okay, Mike, Ivanka said, waving him off. I've seen the video. Penn knew that she was lying. He and Teller had never done this gag before. Could it be that Ivanka wouldn't mind it all that much if he shot her father, the President of the United States, right then and there? Thank you, Ivanka. President Trump, would you please examine the butterfly net? Penn said as Teller handed the net to Trump. Trump looked confused. Butterflies can use a net like this. No, sir. Butterflies made this net with the silk that comes out of their pussies? Uh, no, sir. It's a net for catching butterflies. I knew that. Gently, Teller took the net back from Trump and held it up for all to see. Then Penn reached into the holster and pulled out the gun. Then, holding it in his palm, barreled towards Teller, Penn displayed it for the commander-in-chief. As you see, this is a normal gun, sir. If you look in the chamber, you can see it's loaded. I'll just pull the hammer back and... At that instant... An explosion of blood, brains, and other offal blew out of the left side of Teller's head. The mess covered Jared, who was watching from the side. Like a rag doll, Teller collapsed. Everyone's ears were blasted out, the awful sound still ringing. An eerie silence, broken quickly by Penn sobbing. He had killed his partner and friend of 45 years. Then, the whimpering was drowned out by a sound that no one had ever heard before. Donald Trump laughing. A full-throated belly laugh. Gasping with glee, the president looked over at Jared, covered with brains, viscera, and skull fragments, and pointing at his son-in-law, laughed even harder. All the resentment, all the hate that lives constantly on Trump's face, suddenly melted away. And having just seen someone at close range get their head blown off, he was almost pissing himself with laughter. Oh. <laughs> then suddenly, Penn stopped sobbing, a huge grin on his face. My name is Penn Gillette, and this is my partner, Teller. At that moment, Teller jumped up. He's okay. Teller picked the top hat off the floor, proudly showing the mechanism inside that had propelled the gunk out of the exit wound. As Penn explained how the gag had worked, Teller showed the room how the trigger device had run down the handle of the butterfly net so that he could trigger the explosion with his finger, and then handed Jared a totally inadequate wet nap to clean up the fake blood, brains, and skull tissue, covering the son-in-law's face and torso. We are Penn and Teller, said Penn, as the team took a triumphant bow. 
They had won the contest. Murtaugh was relieved that no one had been killed under his watch and led the standing ovation. Bravo, yelled the vice president. As the bravos filled the room, Trump's laughter had come to a sudden stop, and his scowl returned. It was a blank? No, 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 sir. Uh, a blank would still send a wad of paper out of the barrel and could hurt him. Too dangerous. See, there's not even a... Not even a hole in the barrel. It's solid metal. There is no chance of Teller being hurt. So he's fine. We don't take chances, sir. The sound came from here. Penn pulled up the other side of his coat, revealing a small speaker. The trigger for the sound is the trigger on the gun, wireless. The gunshot is Teller's cue to hit his trigger. No one notices the delay. He offered the gun to Murtaugh. See, the, the barrel's not even warm. Completely safe and fooled everyone. Trump was furious. You are both fired. Get out of here. Failed magicians. No, no, no. Failed murderers. Successful magicians and comedians. We made you laugh, Mr. President. And according to the rules of the contest, your family's midtown high-rise will belong to Teller and myself by close of business tomorrow. Pence felt that he needed to say something. The president did not laugh. I was sitting right here, and I am willing to swear an oath to God Almighty that President Donald Trump did not laugh. But it was clear to everyone there in the Oval that that would just not wash. Ivanka spoke up. You laughed, Dad. But they tricked me. Trump shot back. They made me think he'd blown out Pipsqueak's brain. I know, Dad, Ivanka said sympathetically. But you laughed, and the building will soon belong to Pendulet and... It's just Teller. His legal name is Teller. Teller nodded and handed Jared another small wet nap. When we return, the surprise ending to the day the president laughed. Believe me... You will not want to miss it. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. And now, the disturbing conclusion of The Day the President Laughed.
Later in the residence, Ivanka and Jared calmed the president by explaining what had been the real purpose of the contest. The Midtown Manhattan family high-rise that Penn and Teller would receive was not a Trump family high-rise. It would be the Kushner's White Elephant at 666 Fifth Avenue. Not only did the Kushner's owe hundreds of millions on the building, it was hemorrhaging thousands daily. By getting rid of this albatross, their cash flow would finally be sustainable, and they would accrue tremendous tax benefits, especially because in the paperwork for the contest, they had doubled the evaluation of the building. That meant that for years to come, the Kushners would pay no New York state or federal taxes. Even better, Penn and Teller would be on the line for hundreds of millions of dollars in capital gains they had absolutely no chance of recouping. In essence, every penny the team made for the rest of their lives would go directly to Jared and Ivanka and Donald Trump's grandchildren. And then Donald J. Trump laughed for the second time in his 74 years. <laughs> The end. The Day the President Laughed was produced by Peter Ogburn. Music by Tom Bones Malone. Written and performed by former Senator Al Franken. Donald Trump was played by Anthony Anichuk. Pendulette by Pendulette. And Teller by Dr. Anthony Fauci. I don't know why you had me come all this way. I, I, I had no lines. I'm sorry, Dr. Fauci. I'd forgotten that Teller doesn't talk. Well, this was a, just a complete waste of my time. Oh, I'm sorry, Dr. Fauci. Well, I'm out of here. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. 
Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.